0: still at large. Unsolved British Murders Hello and welcome to this podcast series looking at unsolved British murders. Each episode will take a look at an individual murder or series of killings that, despite the efforts of the various constabularies involved, have, and for whatever reason, never been solved. In most cases, the perpetrator is probably still at large. Due to the nature of the topics covered, this programme is not suitable for children or people who are easily offended or of a fragile disposition. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Janice Carroll Weston 11th of September 1983 Big hair, shoulder pads, high heels... Chunky pearls and trouser suits with the sleeves rolled midway up the forearm. Early 1980s business dress for successful and educated women. It seemed that all women of managerial level and above had the soft obligation to follow the diktat of John T. Malloy's 1980 book, Women Dress for Success. This tome introduced the weaponization of office dress, with the newly invigorated sense of unabashed capitalism and status that seems to typify the era of societal changes wrought by the Thatcher years. Cultural drivers were shows like Dallas that followed the morally questionable exploits of the Ewing family as they scrabble around stuffing their gullets with oil-soaked wads of money. Knott's Landing which was a spin-off and was full of shoulder pads that should have required a licence, and the British were dealing with a sense of relief following the end of the third series of the BBC's attempt of making power dramas. In particular, Triangle. Set on a ferry, it received a critical and public mauling for the stilted dialogue and badly contrived plots. There were far more credible and dynamic shows that had the same aesthetic as their American contemporaries but with the usual sense of British reserve. The women they portrayed were strong-willed, independent and with a sharp sense of professionalism and a commanding presence. Three shows that typify the change of the portrayal of women in positions of authority are all around crime and justice. Juliet Bravo followed the exciting exploits of a female inspector, Jean Darby, in the fictitious town of Hartley, in the very real county of Lancashire. Then on the other side of the thin blue line was the Linda Leplant heist caper, sorry drama, of widows, following the exploits of four widowed wives of a bunch of armed bank robbers who decide to embark on a plan to complete the job that had killed their husbands. It was quite tasteless to my palate and seemed to revel in the naked criminality of the major protagonists. I see that it's just been rebooted as a film. The final show in this list is the police drama The Gentle Touch. A mixture of office-based sexual tension and supposed gritty crime-fighting following the exploits of Detective Inspector Maggie Forbes. Very much in the mould of tough lady cop dramas as exemplified by Cagney and Lacey, the gentle touch brought a heady mix of American-style gun-reliant action and contemporary issues surrounding women in authority, sexism in the workplace and the justice system. Strong, independent, professional women had been given a great boost in their confidence by the tough and publicly uncompromising figure of Margaret... The Iron Lady Thatcher as the first female Prime Minister. There had been many women in the legal profession for some considerable time. Carrie Morrison was among the first of the great female solicitors in England. She had graduated from Girton College, Cambridge with first-class honours, but due to her gender and the time in which her exceptional mind was confined, she wasn't granted a degree. In 1922, she and three others, Mary Pickup, Mary Sykes and Maud Crofts, all qualified as solicitors. Carrie had finished her articles first and was the first to be admitted as a solicitor. These pioneering women cut a swathe through the stuffy confines of an intellectually demanding profession. They more than proved their abilities as fine defenders, advocates and prosecutors. In doing so, they laid a path for women and girls to become powerful legal forces in their own right. One such young woman who took her educational and professional opportunities very seriously was Janice Carroll Weston. Born within years of the end of the Second World War, Janice was part of the generation considered baby boomers, those born immediately after cessation of hostilities. As a child, Janice was described as, quote, a vibrant child, extremely clever and gifted with music and dance, end quote. It was noted that she was a tidy and organised child, even from a young age. Janice. Janice. Janice was obviously academically gifted as well. Janice. Janice went on to Manchester University to study law with a specialism in company law, a deep and complex subject ripe for very lucrative careers. Janice White, as she was then, it seems had found a very good job for a new graduate, with a position as one of the legal advisors to the board and chair of METOI, the long-since-defunct tin toy manufacturer. So successful in this position was Janice, that before long the wild seedlings of attraction and lust became part of the narrative. Janice developed a relationship with the then-chairman, or CEO, Heinz Eisner. Metoy Playcraft had been a big player in the UK market from the 1950s onwards. The founders had Janice. fled from Germany Janice. following the rise of Adolf Hitler and the National Janice. Socialists, arriving in the UK as part of the refugee influx. They specialised in press metal toys and other childhood entertainments. By the 1980s, the company was a major player. Janice, as their legal advisor, worked very closely with the then CEO, Eisner. Following his wife's death in 1975, Eisner and Janice formed a relationship that soon became very involved and it's claimed that Eisner had even proposed to her only for Janice to reject his proposal. When Eisner died in 1977, Janice was left a considerable sum of money, as well as paintings, furniture and shares with a total value of £140,000, which is a reduced figure following the will being contested by his family. £140,000 in today's money would be roughly equivalent to £608,000, or $794,000 as a tidy little sum. The already wealthy young woman had received more. During the time Janice was with Eisner and working for Metoy, she met her future husband, Tony Weston. He, at the time, was married with children, and no relationship developed between him and Janice at that time. In 1982, however, Janice and Tony were to end up as a couple, Two wealthy people, with Janice being a leading solicitor, first with Herbert Oppenheimer, Nathan and Van Dyke, immediately after college, and then Charles Russell and co. as a partner. Janice's drive was monumental, and as well as writing a book on the emerging computer data legal framework, she also helped to set up a network for professional women in business and law. The Neat and Tidy Child had become a force of nature. Tony was a property developer. A property developer in the 1980s sense and not the current idea of a middle-aged couple obtaining buy-to-lets to push up the rents. He had interests all over the country and the continent. Together they had invested quite heavily in Clopton Hall Kettering to redevelop the property into luxury apartments. They would take one of the properties and sell the leasehold of the others, a sensible strategy for investments and returns. Clopton Hall is currently on sale for £1.4 million, if you've always wanted a 10-room country pile to play Lord of the Manor in, and have that amount spare. Property development is less like being a builder or interior designer, and more like being a project manager, overseeing the work and ensuring that deadlines and budgets are kept to as much as possible. It would have involved a lot of trips to the site, and Tony and Janice were regularly on site for this very reason. Weekends were travelling between their London properties and Clopton Hall. The weekend before Janice met her killer, Tony had been to Clopton and on the way back had had a puncture. He swapped the flat with the spare tyre and continued his drive. Tony then put the flat tyre into Kensington tyre motors in West London for repair, keeping the temporary spare on the car. The car itself is an Alfa Romeo Alfetta 2000. This particular model was manufactured between 1982 and 1984. Unlike the earlier and later models, The Alfetta 2000 between 82 and 84 had rectangular headlights rather than the round pair on the other models. Janice's car also had extra fog lights fitted below the front bumper. Looking at the press photographs of the car, those fog lights seem to have had a bit of a knockabout as the passenger side light is pointing quite a long way out of true and inclined upwards the driver's side appears to be pointing downwards from having been pushed back in some way. This could have happened a long time before the car was abandoned. But remember, Janice was a meticulous professional who liked things to be just so, and I struggled to put the lackadaisical approach to the fog lights in the same place as Janice's meticulousness. When I've had cars with extra bits dangling from them, such as headlights or fog lights and the electrical coupling of a tow bar, any time they have been pushed out of position has been due to driver error on my part. To me, it looks like the car was driven into some form of dense vegetation, such as you'd find on a narrow country road or the gateway to a field, before the driver reversed away from there to the left, thereby pulling the passenger light forward. We'll come back to the car later. On the morning of the 10th of September, Janice went to Kensington Tyre Motors to collect the tyre. It was duly put in her boot, not back on the car, meaning that Janice was still driving on her spare. Tony had gone to France in connection with a chateau he hadn't interested in buying for redevelopment, leaving the weekend open for Janice. She was seen by several people around the shops in Holland Park. At approximately midday. Holland Park is a small area of the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, the borough in London brought to the world's attention recently due to the dreadful fire and loss of life at Grenfell Tower. Holland Park is a very affluent area, with leafy tree lined streets, large Victorian townhouses, and a spacious park. It's almost in the centre of London, meaning that city traders, lawyers and associated high-ranking professionals and the extremely rich dominate the area. At the time, the world was coming to grips with the phenomenon of the Sloane Ranger, young fashionable women with wealth either of their own or their husbands who chose to wear certain brands and styles in certain ways. They were associated with the opulence that Margaret Thatcher's economic plan of selling off the family silver to pay for their holidays had produced. It is the era of Harry Enfield's loads of money, where greed was not only seen as a good thing, but almost as a sign of a person's value, in a moral way, as a person. The poor were simply lazy and not taking advantage of the opportunities on offer it was seen as a character flaw. These days, the term Sloan Ranger has been relegated by the upsurge in Yummy Mummies and Quinoa Queens. How fickle fashion is. Janice would certainly have counted as being part of the Sloan Ranger group, simply by dint of the location in which she lived, Kensington and Chelsea, her professional standing and her fashion sense, which seems to have been immaculate, as you can well imagine. At some point during the day, Janice went to her office in Lincoln's Inn, the legal heartlands of the UK. Lincoln's Inn is one of the four inns of court to which all English and Welsh barristers belong. This is an ancient residence of law stretching back into the mists of time with the first recorded records of Lincoln's Inn dating to 1422, by which time it was already a highly structured and disciplined group. Being a partner in a law firm would have marked Janice out as an extremely talented and able legal mind. This Saturday, she had elected to go to the office to continue with some work for a client and do some further work on her book. This would be an academic text on computer data and the legalities that surround it. Janice was there from sometime in the afternoon until at least five o'clock or shortly before. At 4.45pm she took a call from a colleague, placing her in her office at this time. Then the timeline of Janice's last day becomes quite unclear, with curious and tantalising clues left along the way. At some point after 4.45pm, Janice returned to her basement flat in Addison Avenue. At home she had begun to wind down. She cooked herself a meal, opened a bottle of wine, and then, and it's not known what caused the sudden change of plans, Janice packed an overnight bag, took the wine and left her home. As you will remember, Janice was a very neat and tidy person, but on that day she left the dirty plates and food remnants on the counter, which was startlingly out of character. In 1983, the telephone exchanges were still primarily mechanical, so obtaining any incoming call lists or attempts to call were virtually untraceable and almost completely unavailable. So we don't know if Janice received a call from someone she knew or had been lured out by a call telling her to go to Clopton Hall immediately if indeed she was headed to Clopton Hall we don't know if Janice received a visitor after returning home or if she returned home with someone but what we do know is that Janice left quite a lot of stuff that you would normally think a classy and educated woman may well keep with her such as her handbag containing all of her credit cards and checkbook It was found later by police on her bed in her flat, which again seems incongruous with what we know about Janice. From the moment Janice leaves her office, we have virtually no clue about her movements, but we do know that the night in question saw some very heavy traffic coming out of London and some pretty mucky weather, making the drive up the A1 a slower-than-normal trudge of headlights and red lights. It's thought that Janice would have arrived at the lay-by where she was killed at some point after 9pm, because of the weather and traffic. By some odd quirk of fate, Janice experienced a puncture in the rear near-side wheel, the one with the spare on it. This was the reason she pulled into the lay-by. The tyre needed changing. It was during this unscheduled and most likely unwelcome stop That Janice's killer attacked her. The known facts are that Janice had been changing the wheel, or at least attempting to, as evidenced by the oil found on her fingers. We also know, as an absolute, that Janice was struck from behind, then from above. The implement was the tyre iron that had been used to change the wheel. The mystery is whether the wheel change had been completed before she died or not. Whoever killed her, according to police, had, quote unquote, lost control and had battered her so severely that the term overkill has been used to describe it. Rage-induced violence exhibiting a loss of control to a very specifically focused target is usually indicative of there being a relationship between the victim and the killer. But Janice had no known enemies. She was popular, bright, had a wide and varied social life and was well respected by those with whom she worked. There seems to have been no motive for the killing at all. The killer didn't bother to hide her body or make it look like a robbery as she was still wearing her gold watch and wedding ring. After killing her, The murderer simply got back in her car and drove away. There are six witnesses who claim to have seen a man replacing a tyre in that lay-by at the time in question on a silver Alfa Alfetta or car similar to Janice's, but they don't mention there being another car in the lay-by. This point is important because had Janice been followed into the lay-by by by a companion travelling in convoy to Clopton Hall, or by a stranger who had pulled in to offer help as a ruse before killing her, their car would have been seen, it would have been there in the lay-by. The prospect of a stranger killing her seems unlikely, as it would have required two people to be in the supposed other vehicle, as Janice's car, and any other car, would have had to have been driven away, and yet there are no reports of there being another car. Discovery was another case of ordinary people being caught up in a series of dreadful events quite by chance. The Luton Wheelers Cycle Club had a 12-hour time trial for the Sunday morning and one of their members, David Hurst, had arranged to meet with his wife to take refreshments before continuing. Mrs Hurst chose, quite by chance, the same lay-by where Janice was. David duly arrived in time and having stopped for the rest and fluids he decided to take advantage of the situation and went to relieve himself but within a few feet and in a drainage ditch that ran alongside the lay-by he discovered the lifeless and badly beaten body of Janice Weston An investigation was launched with Detective Chief Superintendent Len Brady of Cambridgeshire Police at the helm The area was cordoned off and the lay-by meticulously examined. Robbery as a motive was quickly ruled out because Janice was still wearing her expensive jewellery. But at the scene, there was nothing of importance beyond the victim. As she had no identification on her, Janice went unidentified for a few days and it wasn't until she failed to arrive at work that Janice was reported missing and it would take a full three days before she was finally fully and officially identified. Some reports claim that this was due to the terrible extent of her injuries, and others that it was delayed due to formalities and finding people who could identify the as-yet unknown woman. Her injuries were such, however, as survival would have been impossible and the attack has been described as sustained, meaning that the killer had put a lot of rage into the action and would have been bloodied quite extensively. Severe head injuries can lead to the face becoming quite heavily distorted, either from bruising and swelling or the failure of the underlying skull structures due to heavy blows. Either way, it's certainly not the bump on the noggin that films would have you believe. Once Janice had been identified, a search was begun for her husband, who was rapidly located in Paris. In the intervening time, Janice's car turned up parked on a metre in Redhill Street, Camden, North London. It had been parked there since the afternoon of the 11th, but police do not know where it had been between the time Janice was killed and it being parked. Inside the car were more clues that led detectives away from the robbery gone wrong theory of the case, as Janice's purse, containing £37, that's almost £90 in today's money, her house keys, overnight bag and half-finished bottle of wine were found inside. This mystery deepened further when, following a full forensic examination of the car, one blood smear was found on the inside of the windshield, but there were no other fingerprints or traces of anyone else having been in the car. It seems likely, then, that the killer had driven the car away from the lay-by on the A1 northbound carriageway and had, at some point, either crossed the dual carriageway and headed south or had found an alternative route south? Was it during this time that the killer had had to make a three-point turn in a narrow lane and knock the fog lights out of alignment? Had the pair been travelling to Clopton Hall together to inspect the work or spend the evening? Had an argument started in London necessitating a drive to Kettering that escalated along the route? And then the passenger had been pushed over the edge when the flat tyre happened and the sudden extra stress of the situation caused the argument to escalate outside of the car during the tyre change. With hair-triggered tempers frayed by the journey and what other stresses they had, did it result in a sudden uncontrolled explosion of rage and hatred toward her. Had the killer then taken the car somewhere possibly a garage, or even just outside of their house, to wipe the inside carefully and make sure that no prints were left. It seems likely, but there's things missing from the car that police still believe hold important information. Although the murder weapon, the tyre iron, has been recovered, from a field not far away, the spare tyre that had been replaced with the one collected from the garage that morning is still missing it seems logical to assume a couple of things at this point. The murderer killed Janice, finished the tyre change and simply drove away from the scene, leaving the wheel by the roadside. It can be assumed there are only a few options as to what happened with the wheel. A passing motorist found it later, and realising that they had found a genuine alpha wheel with its distinctive raised and embossed centre, the 20 air holes around the edge and four bolt holes to attach it to the car, they then took it home with an eye to selling it for a few quid at a car boot sale or simply to sell through small ads in the local papers or had the killer decided to ditch the wheel in a secluded and convenient spot, possibly an ad hoc fly tipping point and he or she had simply hidden it in the rest of the rubbish. Or is it still sitting in the killer's garage as a trophy or reminder of the night? We simply do not know, as no sign of the wheel has ever been discovered. Thankfully, the tyre wrench was retrieved from a nearby field. It was to provide no significant evidence other than being the weapon that was used to put Janice to death. One of the problems with the missing wheel is that there is innumerable bits of junk, vehicles and associated ironmongery thrown in hedges at lay-bys all over the UK. Much to my wife's annoyance, I've been known to find useful stuff by the roadside and repurpose it, and I know a lot of people who have done the same. If a passing motorist had picked it up, would they have been aware of the news that came the following day? Not everyone bothers with the news, so they may well have missed all of the appeals or decided that they wanted nothing to do with a murder investigation. If it's the latter, I implore you to come forward. So police were now in possession of three really important pieces of evidence. The murder weapon, her car and of course Janice's body. What they still lacked was a motive. There is a saying I've seen repeated often in true crime discussions, which is, There's only ever three reasons for murder money, sex, or drugs. Police began their investigation into her husband, Tony. As stated earlier, Tony had gone to France for the weekend to visit a chateau he was interested in buying. He had checked into his hotel on the Friday night, used his credit card in the process and had used it again on the Sunday evening. But there was, initially, a gap in his movements around the time in question. In the pre-digital days, slipping in and out of countries was fairly easy and it seems that the police believed that Tony had checked into his hotel, then travelled back to the ports, then obtained entry to the country without appearing on any manifests, I mean this was possible by hitching a lift with a lorry driver but I doubt Tony Weston would have done that and it's not a guarantee of getting to your destination but it is or at least was possible. This would have meant that Tony would have arrived at the port with no further travel forward without an accomplice. For me it's a weak theory. As with all murders, the police began by investigating those closest to the victim. But with Tony, the investigation seems to have lost its way a little by becoming convinced that they had their man and they expended a great deal of effort into making him confess. When they finally did arrest him in late 1984, police held him for 55 hours in a room with the door open and the light permanently on. This was later claimed that it was an operational oversight and that the police were merely closely monitoring him during his detention. In total, Tony was questioned for five hours and despite the police thoroughly investigating him and his movement, Tony was, eventually, exonerated of any involvement. There's nothing particularly strange about the investigation into the husband although it does seem that the SIO became a little myopic and convinced that the killer had been her husband, for a while at least. There were some questions about the value of Janice's will. Was Tony going to profit enough to consider killing her? She, being a wealthy woman, had a reasonable estate and left behind £300,000, with gifts being left to her sister and husband. Although her husband would not get a lump sum, but income from the two thirds of the estate for life. A pecuniary motive was ruled out. There are so many odd things to cover with this case that doing them in chronological order is somewhat challenging. So I'll have to hop around a little. Following the discovery of Janice and the subsequent media coverage with the normal appeals for information, the owner of a motor spare shop came forward. On the morning that Janice was discovered, a man had gone in and ordered a set of number plates. Not very surprising, but the manner of the order and the number was. When asked for the number to be on the plate, the man handed over a slip of paper with the number on it rather than say it. A lot of commentary has been said about that, but I don't think much of it. The number plate itself is still curious though. False plates are a beloved staple of crime dramas and thieves alike and it's speculated that the man could have been a part of a car theft ring or some other untoward activity. Although I dismissed the scrap of paper, it's still full of questions in itself. Did the man in the shop write it down before going in? Was there someone waiting in a car nearby that had written it down? What was the purpose of the set of plates? Janice's car was found with hers in place and undamaged. So who were they for? He is described as fair haired, around five foot eight to five foot ten of a medium build. This description very closely matches the description of the man seen changing the wheel of a silver coloured car on the A one on the evening in question. Both of these men are yet to come forward. The police have said that they are categorically not interested in pursuing any crimes related to vehicle theft that might have been involved. 1983 was a long time ago and hopefully those ties that bind, by loyalty or fear, have worn thin and broken, allowing the man to come forward. Police also question Heinz Eisner's granddaughter in connection with the murder. The money that Janice had been bequeathed in the will was equal to £185,000, but the family contested the sum and had it reduced to £140,000. Money is a curious thing. It's an absolute necessity. But some people appear to be unable to function properly when it comes to large sums. And a deeply held grudge against someone who apparently has cheated the family out of a considerable sum is an understandable theory to examine. And police were thorough, uncovering a wealth of exculpatory evidence that supported her alibi. Another blank. That really is it for the known facts of the case. But there are some theories that deserve an airing. One theory states that Janice and Tony were in some way involved with drugs and that the spare wheel had a significant amount of something illegal in it. It's barely credible given that the spare wheel had been put on by Tony following a visit to Clopton Hall and had then been driven around on for a week before that then got a flat and needed replacing. The holes are obvious. If Janice and Tony had invested enough money to fill a car tyre with some exotic powder they then wouldn't risk that investment by driving around on it. I know the extremely wealthy are capable of some sheer craziness but this breaks the bounds of credibility. I simply don't buy the drugs angle. Then there's the theory about the Mafia being involved with Tony in some way and that Janice was taken from her house as a kidnap and that her death Was that kidnap going wrong? Yeah, no, it doesn't work. Both Janice and Tony had regular trips abroad to the continent and were well-travelled and connected people. But I really don't think that Janice's death is a mafia hit at all. There is, however, an interesting Italian connection involving a man with a more than chequered past. On the 4th of July 2017 on a rather curious website, an article by Giovanni Di Stefano appeared. It was a reposting of a 2013 repost of an earlier article on the Janice Weston murder. And it is a strange article. The writer switches from third person when talking about themselves to talking in the first person about the research they've done that seems to validate the statements made by the same writer when referring to himself in the third person. Then there's tone, or, more correctly, the unity of tone exhibited across the piece. As it slips and trips from third to first person, emails supposedly sent to the author claim to have known Janice as a young girl and at school, with exactly the same tempo and tone as Giovanni di Stefano. It's really noticeable due to the fact that the author of the page has italicised some of the alleged correspondence but not other parts, making it difficult to establish who is supposed to be speaking, Giovanni or the school friend. Also on this website, which doesn't seem to be a fully credible source of news, is Giovanni's blog disguised as a series of articles entitled Diaries from the Inside and document his life behind bars. Giovanni Di Stefano, you see, is a convicted fraudster. His interests include, as he proudly boasts, defending the indefensible, being friends with war criminals, genocidal maniacs and celebrity paedophiles. Another hobby Giovanni has indulged from time behind bars to time behind bars is pretending to be a member of the legal profession, either a solicitor or a barrister and is barred from proclaiming himself to be a legal advocate or from acting as a solicitor in the UK and Italy. The Americans have got the hump with him too for fraud. He's been in trouble for deceptions and frauds all over the world. His favourite type of fraud was the legal and property one. He'd claimed to represent such and such to try and obtain hefty upfront investments or try to claim deeds to property or sell property that wasn't his. He would regularly use documents he'd made to support the claims he needed to get cash and property. He was a Long Kong grifter, in other words. He was arrested for deception in the UK in June 1984, for which he was bailed. In August, he was again arrested for deception, and this time the bail was refused. Following a 78-day trial, Giovanni was jailed for five years, prohibited from being a company director for ten years on the strength of being found guilty of 11 counts of fraud, for which he served the whole term. His earlier convictions had been for deception in the Republic of Ireland, and obtaining property by deception in the UK. Giovanni claims these convictions were made by a man called John DiStefano, a different man from Giovanni DiStefano, but that they shared the same birth date and birthplace and surname is just a mere coincidence. It is also nothing more than coincidence that he went by the name John until the early 1980s, because Giovanni is the Italian version of John. He has made claims about having a PhD from Cambridge, which have been debunked and proven to be untrue. And he has pulled some right whoppers, including bidding to buy MGM Studios in the USA, several multi-million dollar properties in New Zealand, and his dealings with five hotels in the Midlands of the UK and the company Sandhurst Assets. Judging by the name of that enterprise, he was after the Stiff Upper lip Brigade, with Sandhurst being the military training academy for officers in the British Armed Services. He has had dealings with almost every infamous 'er ne'er-do-well of the last 30 years. He's also claimed some that weren't genuine. The list includes Jeremy Bamber, convicted of killing his entire family, Charles Bronson, not the actor, Britain's longest solitarily confined prisoner, former glam rocker and notorious paedophile Gary Glitter, Ali Hussain Al-Majid, better known as Chemical Ali, Moore's murderer Ian Brady, and mass dispatcher of the elderly Harold Shipman. Shipman's lawyers refute any dealings with him. He has also been known to boast about his friendships with Saddam Hussein, Serbian warlord Arkan, and Slobodan Milošević. He has been arrested for posing as a solicitor and at the same time acted as counsel for reasonably high-profile cases such as that of property tycoon Nicholas van Hoogstraten. He has been observed in court as directing the legal team without fully ever pretending to be a solicitor. Although the law society have a conviction in their favour against him, as he was unable to produce his legal credentials to prove that he was a solicitor. Quite the character, eh? His interest in this case could be as public-minded as mine is, or as any of the times this appeal for information has been made. His current incarceration is due to run for a while yet, so he may well be trying to reform and act with beneficial motives. But I can't shake how law, property and criminality all feature in his background, and that of Janice Weston's death. Do I think that he's in some way responsible? I couldn't possibly comment, as the evidence hasn't been looked for yet. If I were to speculate about this case, I would say that Janice was impelled in some way to leave her flat at very short notice. Had she been told there was trouble on site, an accident or a situation that would require her to be on site and was it a telephone call that took her away or did someone come to her door? Did she have an overnight bag at the ready? I know when I've been through periodically nomadic and peripatetic periods of my life I've kept a small bag ready to go at a moment's notice. If Tony and Janice were in the habit of dashing off on a weekend to their country pile doesn't it make sense to think that Janice didn't pack it in a rush? But then there's the matter of the things left in her flat. It seems that she was leaving in a hurried way. Had she been told there was a fire at the hall? Was she forced by a stranger? It's certainly possible, and this is one of the most frustrating things with this case. The lack of clarity around her leaving London that night. Another couple of thoughts that have popped up over the years were that this was the work of Peter Tobin, and, as appealing as that sounds, there's absolutely zero evidence linking him to the crime. Missing links to the crime are primarily what this case has in spades. There's no link to her husband or any of the financial dealings they were involved with as a couple. No link with the family whom she inherited a substantial sum of money from. No link to anyone in her social, professional or personal life. No link between the car and the killer. Allegedly, as all that was found was a smudge of blood on the inside of the windscreen and nowhere else. And no fingerprints. The other case that was somehow linked, or at least considered, was that of Penny Bell. A 50-year-old interior designer who was violently stabbed to death in her car in 1991. I'm covering that one next, because of the parallels with this one. Police, however, dismissed any link very rapidly. There have been some interesting noises from the Cambridgeshire police recently in regard to the quote, possibility of new DNA evidence, unquote, which will hopefully put the fear into the killer and they will get sloppy and make a mistake. But there's also the possibility that the person who did this was within Janice's life all along. This next section is tricky because I don't want it to seem as if I am pointing the finger at Janice because the fault of her death lies ultimately and singularly with the person who lifted that hard tire iron and brought it shatteringly down on her skull and then did it again and again and again in a rage-filled very personal attack on her. Whilst it's been shown that there is no evidence of any extramarital affairs on either side of the marriage, if Janice, and it is a big if, was having an affair and they decided on a whim to go to Clopton and an argument broke out, leading to a fatal loss of control, there need not be any sign of it. We forget how innocent the 1980s were. Passive data was slight and covering one's tracks was unbelievably easy. No one had a location device in their pocket. Triangulated pings giving near perfect location all of the time. There was not the mass of CCTV cameras that fill the city's towns, roads and motorways. Call logs were difficult to obtain. Phone boxes made untraceable calls possible. People could move around freely without a permanent record being made. It wouldn't have taken much for a woman of Janice's intellectual prowess to cover her tracks, and people who would partake of such risky liaisons would not only understand the rules of the game, as it were, but would probably be capable of keeping an entire section of their life neatly compartmentalised, whilst still enjoying the sport of the dalliance, the adrenaline of their encounters, and the passion that snatched moments can bring. It's an outside speculation at best, and I really don't think there's any substance to it. But all of the possibilities have to be considered. So, was she having an affair? Had she picked up a hitchhiker? I mean, that's an even further outside chance. But then again, at the moment, everything is an outside chance. What is clear is that the person who parked the car in Redhill Street in Camden... Had the presence of mind to wipe the interior of the car clean, dispose of their bloody clothes, and they would have been very bloody. Wounds to the head bleed profusely, severe wounds even more so. Repeated heavy blows would send blood spatter everywhere. So it's fairly safe to assume that the killer would have needed new clothes. Do you remember anyone burning any clothes around this time? It sounds like such a paper-thin wish. But I can still remember the most minuscule thing from 40 years ago, including bonfires. So a bonfire or patio around the 11th, 12th or 13th of September 1983 that would have been out of place, because I suspect that the killer is rather well-to-do, would be notable. Did you notice it? I suspect that Janice knew her killer, either through her professional or social scene. But there's still the question of why did she leave her flat in the way she did. Someone knows, and that someone is still at large. If you have any information, please let the Cambridgeshire Police have it as soon as possible. You can contact them by telephoning 101 and asking for the Operation Oakmere team or by calling crime stoppers completely anonymously on 0800 555 111. That's 0800 555 111. Still at large is an independent true crime podcast It is written, presented and edited by me Desmond J Brambley If you would like to help support the show, please visit our Patreon page by visiting patreon.com slash stillatlargepodcast. You can join in with the conversations about the show or the cases on our Facebook page by visiting facebook slash stillatlargepodcast. The theme is by Duke Deck, an online music AI at dukedeck.com. Still at Large is a Tiny Yellow Dinosaur media production.